All right, perfect. So um, you guys are probably sick of hearing about COVID, but I thought it'd be appropriate to do a couple of updates, especially we just updated the treatment protocol. So some of the topics we will discuss and uh, feel free to you know, interrupt and ask questions at any point in time. I kind of prefer these things when they were in person and we could discuss, um, but we'll, we'll go for it. So we'll talk a little bit about herd immunity in the, in the context of SARS-CoV-2 uh, as a recurrent seasonal infection, which is what we're getting ready to see here. Uh, we'll talk a little bit, touch a little bit on vaccine inequality and how all of these things are linked, uh, viral variants and vaccine efficacy. And then just a couple of slides on animal reservoirs and, and these recurrent spillover events or the potential for them. So a little bit of background. Back when this whole thing started in March, I think um, I, I used to talk to the fellows a lot about the significance of R0, right? So how many persons, how many other persons can one person infect, right? And that, that number is different for different diseases, right? We talked about it being anywhere from one to two for COVID. We talked about measles, it being up to 15, 15 to 20, depending, right? So that, that plays a role in how, what, it, what we would need to reach herd immunity, right? So it's, uh, it's an infectious disease, sort of a theoretical construct for epidemiology. Uh, if, if we were to calculate it, it would look something like this, one minus one over R, R being the number of infections caused by a single infection in a population in which everyone is assumed to be susceptible. That means a population in which every individual is equally likely to encounter every other individual, right? So that means uh, that's going to depend on a lot of things that we're doing with social distancing and masking, et cetera, et cetera. So it basically states that the transmission will not be sustained when immunity reaches that number or that level that is a calculated number, right? And this can be achieved in a number of ways. Natural infection or past infection, vaccination or both, right? And we know that just doing number one alone is not gonna get us there fast enough. In fact, with all these new variants, uh, there's, there's no chance, right? So we really need both with the emphasis being on vaccination. So again, this will depend on how much interaction individuals have with one another. It's gonna vary by state or city after social distancing mandates are lifted, especially. And then it will depend on non-random mixing, right? So individuals not equally likely to interact with one another. So depending on what's um, in place. Uh, this is going to lead to modifications in the level of immunity that's required to stop transmission, right? So it, there's a lot of factors. Despite all of these things and sort of variables, uh, most public health officials suggest that achieving herd immunity, especially in the winter, because we do think this is a seasonal virus, and in the presence of these new, more contagious variants that we've been seeing, is gonna require more than 70 to 80% of individuals to be immune, right? So we've been hearing that number of 70% since the beginning of this. All right, so what are the challenges to achieving this? Well, we already have evidence of decreased vaccine efficacy, right, with these new variants. We're seeing that with all of our vaccines, especially the 1.351, the 351 variant, the South Africa. 
not all individuals will receive the vaccine, right? So children, there's no studies in children, so we're not vaccinating children. Uh, of course, our anti-vaxxer groups. And then just general vaccine hesitancy in the population, right? This, on a much more global scale, is also manifested by just global disparities in vaccine distribution, vaccine inequality. If you look at Facebook, like one, one example of surveys, right? Facebook's data, data for good initiative. They asked people um, whether or not they would vaccinate, right? So proportion of individuals who responded yes or yes, probably to the question of, will you take the vaccine if it was offered to you? Was much lower than, was it 50-60%? It increased in January 2021 and has reached, sort of leveled off at a max number of 71%. This is similar to a 72% response that was seen in a, a nationally representative sample. So everyone getting vaccinated is a concern. Also, do previous infections from one variant protect individuals from reinfection with some variants? We already have some evidence that that is not the case. You can get infected with the new variants, even if you have immunity and have been infected with the sort of wild type mutant virus. Uh, in fact, we have evidence already from some of these vaccine companies. Novavax, for example, has a phase 2B clinical trial in South Africa, and this showed that COVID-19 incidence rate for this B1351 in the placebo group was 3.9%, both among individuals with COVID-19 seropositivity and those who were COVID-19 seronegative, right? So it was the same. The incidence rate of this new variant was the same in both people that had COVID before and people who had never had COVID. So th that's uh, pretty concerning, right? So if we take this B1351 variant, for example, right, the South African variant, and say that this becomes a dominant variant. So the aggregate effectiveness of vaccines for preventing B1351 transmission in the US could be only as low as 50%, right? So based on current effectiveness of 90%, 90 to 95% that we have to prevent symptomatic disease, multiply by 20% reduction in efficacy per, for preventing infection compared to symptomatic disease, and assuming an average reduction in efficacy for this new variant of 33%, right? So, so that decreases to 50%. That's pretty impressive, right? A lot of numbers, but kind of uh, stay with me. There's going to be a point to this. Um, so even with vaccination, if transmission remained similar to what occurred this winter, let's say hospitalizations and deaths in our, the next winter, 2021 to 2022, should be less, right, with vaccination. But another winter surge like we just saw, right, where we were reporting our record numbers of hospitalizations maximum ICU capacity, maximum IC, uh, hospital census capacity. This is going to depend on behavior just as well. So mask wearing and social distancing, um, what, how is that going to be, what is going to be happening with that a year from now, right? So, so far through mask wearing and social distancing, before the va vaccines came along, an estimated 19% of U.S. residents have been infected so far. So, what are the challenges for next winter, a year from now? Maintaining these social distancing mandates, right? Where are we going to be? And this is in the context of the new variants, uh, the new uh, variants, right? So 
it's going to be a lot more difficult, right? I mean, we're all looking forward to, and there are plenty of discussions to when will we be able to sort of back off on some of these things. There's a, certainly public fatigue that's been happening. That's nothing new. It's been happening for a while. And then the potential lasting effect on the economy, what's happened to the economy, that's another challenge to whether we're going to maintain sort of these additional barriers of protection, right? So if new variants continue to appear, the winter surges may become the norm. All right, so let's talk about all these things um, that are the so-called challenges, right? So global, let's start with global vaccine inequality. So just an idea of what's happening in the US. As of March 15th, this is March 15th, 16th, this is what it looked like, right? This is the number of doses administered by day uh, in the US. We had we on a single day on March 13th, we administered 4,575,496 doses, right? Uh, you can see here what our seven day average has been. So at this rate, if you look at the picture on the right, that was a week ago, what our predictions were. So if the country maintains its current pace of vaccinating people, um, about half of the total population will be vaccinated by when, right? And then, so this is half of the population. Just in a week's worth of time and how we increase the daily doses of vaccination, it changed, 90% of the population will be, or the, that qualify will be vaccinated, vaccinated by September the 5th. That was a week ago. This week, it's already down by a month. So we would achieve that 90% by August 7th. All right. But what's happening around the world, right? So this is how many doses have been distributed as of March 14th, 15th in the world, right? So let's say 360 million vaccine doses have been administered. But what does that look like for the world, right? So it actually looks a little bit more like this. Uh, from, all, from these 360 million, there's a huge disparity to where these shots are going to, right? So higher income countries are definitely getting the bulk of the uh, vaccination doses, as you can see here, right? Uh, and this is, this is a, a picture I had back from uh, early February. Just wanted to show this because the trends are exactly the same at this point. So you can see the, the difference, but, but still, these are, this is only mentioning these sort of higher income countries that actually have vaccinations, vac vaccine stocks and have been vaccinating. So you can see all the different countries there. This is what it looks like for the world as far as doses administered per 100 um, persons, right? So you can see the countries that are sort of leading the way in the number of doses. And you can see some countries are not even, have yet to even report a single dose. And, and this has a lot to do with a lot of different things in some cases because they literally have not and don't have any. And some is just a lack of reporting. So, As COVID continues to spread, this is this is a concern, right? There's there's new variants, um, and there's vaccination uh, vaccination campaigns in some of the world's poorest countries haven't even started yet, right? So we all know this is a pandemic. If we don't stop disease everywhere else, uh, yeah, we we may be better for a little bit of time, but it's never going to end, right? So. Um, COVID continues to spread. There's new variants, and then some some countries haven't even begun vaccinating. Meanwhile, in the higher income countries, 
they have pre-purchased, they, we have pre-purchased access to supplies that can cover their populations and about four times over. So we, ha we have pre-purchased enough vaccine doses that we can vaccinate the U.S. population over and over again, four times. Canada, six times over. There's several examples, right? So high-income countries have 16% of the world's population, but yet hold 60% of vaccine doses that have been purchased. Uh, so again, huge disparity there. Some of the data shows that most developing countries will not even have access to widespread shots before 2023 at the earliest. And I'll show you what some of those predictions look like. So again, this isn't just unconscionable. It's just very much against our own interests, right? And in the interests of high income countries. If we don't, if this continues, we won't have, we won't uh, reach an end, even if we're doing well with vaccinations here, right? So this is from the Economist Intelligence Unit data. Um, and this, this was talking about when will widespread vaccination coverage be achieved in some of these other countries, right? So the ones in the green, deep green, 2021, the lighter green by mid 2022, orange, late 2022, and then some countries that won't even achieve this till early 2020. So that's two years from now. Again, showing the huge disparities there. So uh, just to show you a little bit of numbers, right? So again, this is from one example to go with the diagrams. So if we had um, the, at 80.2 million doses back then, they had been administered and gone only to a handful of these high, high middle income countries, namely US, China, the EU, UK, Israel, and UAE. As far as um, some of the middle income countries, which some of those uh, poorest among them are India, Myanmar, Ecuador, and Indonesia, they had given about 2.3 million doses in total. Two million of those went just to India, right? And then the lowest income countries, such as these, Zambia, uh, Bolivia, Nepal, et cetera, have not, haven't, have not, had not even begun vaccinating at all. So what does this tell us? Things that everybody, we, we all already know, but uh, are, is a huge concern. COVID-19 vaccines are not a public good, capital rules right, just with most pharmaceutical related things. All right, so what are we doing about this? What is being done about this? So there's a multilateral effort to support development and equitable distribution of 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccines to the world's poorest countries before the end of 2021. This is called COVAX. This initiative has two parts. Uh, one is purchasing uh, purchasing pool for higher income countries, and number two is a fundraising effort for poorer countries. So by promising to buy a certain number of vaccine doses for manufacturers, the countries that join will get access to any vaccines approved in COVAX's portfolio. Uh, this will create a global market for the shots and, and an attempt to drive prices down, right? So because what is happening right now? So all these richer countries, high income countries, pre-purchased a lot of these vaccine stocks, right? So they've already been pre-purchased. Low-income countries didn't even get a shot at this because you know uh, the higher-income countries sort of cleared the shelves, so to speak, right? So what happens? So you have increased demand for a pro for a product, and not only did they not pre-purchase, but now but now the prices are higher, right? So this is trying to address that problem for the lower-income countries. 
All right. So that was vaccine inequality. Now we're going to talk about uh, these new variants of concern, right? So first for a little bit of background, SARS-CoV-2, what do we know about SARS-CoV-2, right? So this is a RNA virus, right? So it's an envelope, positive stranded RNA virus, coronaviruses in general. Mutations are normal, right? It's a natural byproduct of viral replication for these viruses. They're very common in RNA viruses. And although they are common, they're actually, as far as RNA viruses, coronaviruses mutate at a much lower rate than other RNA viruses. They have uh, an enzyme, a specific enzyme that has a proofreading activity. So that helps uh, these coronaviruses make less mistakes. It's unique to coronaviruses. Most of these, not all of them, but most of them are determ determined by natural selection. And what is going to give the virus a more competitive advantage, right? What is going to increase viral fitness? What is going to help the virus get to the next host, right? Um, if they're constantly, they're constantly mutating every time they copy themselves, right? So they're just trying out new ways. It's survival of the fittest for the virus as well, right? So that's sort of the background on that. So how do we approach these variants? So uh, how to look at these? What questions do we need to ask ourselves? All right, so did the variant achieve prominence through natural selection or chance events? If it was by natural selection, then which mutations are being selected? Why? What is the benefit of these mutations, the adaptive benefit of these mutations? And then what effect do these mutations have on transmissibility and spread, antigenicity or virulence? Even more importantly, uh, creation of resistant um, of antibody resistance, right? So, if we can sort of break these up into two different types of emerging variants, right? So there's there's variants that are more transmissible. So this selection pressure on the virus to infect human cells, more and more human cells, and maximize replication of its genome. It's going to make it um, more fit to be able to spread more rapidly, right? So this is what we saw what happened with what's happening with the B117, um, formerly known as a UK variant, right? Um, artists formerly known as the UK variant. We're supposed to call them by their numbers and not by the country uh, where, they, where they were first isolated. So that's one type. And then you have the antibody resistant variants. So this could, this could obviously affect efficacy of some vaccines. They appear to be less frequent, but obviously more of a concern, or you can have both, right? You can have a B117 that then can acquire mutations that can make it look more like the 351 and the P1, right? All right, so some theories as to what is happening here. So we talked about natural selection and obvious things, especially if, you have high incidence in a, in a population and you're giving the, vir the virus multiple you know, ways to keep, keep itself alive in the population, uh, so that gives it a chance for more of these um, mutations that then lead to higher changes that have more of, a, of an effect and in turn become variants, right? So what, are some of the, what, what could be happening here? What are some things that could be happening? All right, so 
For antibody resistant variants, so are these neutralizing antibodies induced by infection or vaccination, right? So, so one way to look at this is, and this is going to tie in with why we stick to specific schedules for our vaccines, right? So if the virus is coming to infect you, for example, and you have already received both doses of your vaccine, and it's been you know two weeks from when you got your second dose of your vaccine, let's say, so you're giving it the strongest chance, the strongest neutralizing antibody response that the virus could, could see, right? So this could happen either because you got your two doses and you're past the time, or a person that was infected that has already received a, uh, at least one dose or, you know, sort of booster, so to speak, right? Th those are the people that are going to have your strongest neutralizing antibody responses. So the virus is going to see those people and it's going to have no chance and viral replication is going to be suppressed and good, we move on. Then at the bottom are going to be persons with a weak response, right? So that this means somebody who has not been vaccinated and has not never been infected with COVID, right? So they have nothing. So the virus comes in, sees this, uh, I have no pressure to do anything, this is too easy, I move on. No, nothing, there's no pressure to make any changes in, in, you know, arguably in these top two. But what about an intermediate response, right? What about persons that are in between? So they've gotten their first vaccine dose, they've never been infected with COVID, they've gotten their first vaccine dose, they're still waiting to get that second dose, right? So you're somewhere in the middle. So your antibody, neutralizing antibody response is not yet at that 90, 95%. So these are the people that you can make an argument for. This is danger zone, right? The, the virus sees this and sees, oh, well, there's something going on here. Um, I need to make some changes, adapt, do something different and change to be able to kind of evolve and continue to replicate itself, right? This, can, this has also been, been seen and there's case reports of this being seen with quote unquote chronic infection. What does that mean? That means somebody who is severely immunosuppressed whose viral replication continues and continues, and you guys have seen these in the hospital, nonstop persistent viral replication uh, because they can't neutralize because they're so severely immunosuppressed. In these cases, you can also see this sort of situation where the virus then finds uh, itself um, sort of evolving and creating ways to escape in order to, to be able to replicate, right? So a combination of high virus replication, uh, within an individual and suboptimal level of neutralizing antibody is sort of this recipe for uh, why resistant viruses may be may emerge, right? So we talked about the first bullet point here, the concept. So, so how does this apply to our vaccine strategies, right? So wanted to kind of give a background on this because there's there's been a lot of discussion, and we get asked all the time about whether oh, this patient had their first dose, but now they're going for surgery. Can we delay their second dose? Or now this is happening. Can we delay their second dose? Right. So, and even there's countries like the UK, for example, that are extent, that are experimenting with extending the dosing intervals, right? In an attempt to try to vaccinate with the first dose more of their population, kind of extending that dosing interval. So if you think back to what I just mentioned, the argument against is well, no, that's probably not a good idea. This could be this could be a good uh, reason for why we may be creating these uh, resist antibody resistant variants and why uh, they may be this viral concept of viral escape, right? So you're not really fully protected after the first dose. 
it's only after your second dose that you have that really strong neutralizing antibody response, right? So I pretty think I drove that point home already. So, right, so two dose Sarah can better cope with not just the wild type and uh, B117, but even the more resistant viruses, at least you give it a better chance, right? So that a reduction in immunity, if you see that more resistant virus, but you're at, you started at that 90, 95%, maybe that reduction can be a little better tolerated and we can at least keep people out of the hospital, right? So uh, bottom line is stick to the FDA approved schedule, makes sense, but you know, we do get a lot of questions and, and this, this is um, kind of a, a way to make a, uh, make it more tangible. So the sooner that each person receives a stronger protection, comfort by, you know, in a two dose, type of vaccine, obviously, um, then that's better both for that individual and for the population at large. And why are we, you know, at this point, there's a lot of rights. Some states are, are backing off. They're, they're backing off of mask mandates and social distancing. Let's not, let, let's try not to do all this and get into these vaccine experiments or backing off of social distancing when we're just finally starting to see trends down in cases, hospitalizations, deaths, et cetera. So, so you know, let's let's not act too prematurely is the point here. All right. So just to mention a little bit more about these variants, we'll start with the B117, which was the one uh, originally identified in the UK and Kent, as we mentioned before. So. It's been detected in over 90 countries. Uh, if we talk about the US, it has reached at least 46 states. Again, this take all this with a grain of salt. Um, identifying these new variants all has to do with our, the amount of surveillance, right? So just like we found ourselves back in March and April, May, um, and found out many months later that really actually the truly, the true number of new cases we were having per day uh, was more of a four to 10 times higher than what we were actually seeing, right? Because it's all about testing and it's all about surveillance. So, but let's take this B117. Uh, so this is predicted to be the predominant source of all infections in the U.S. by now, right? March, we're in March. So 30 to 50% more infectious than other variants in circulation today, likely to be more deadly based on some of the early studies. Seems to be doubling every 10 days in the U.S., um, testing suggests the vaccines still work well against it. So that's one positive thing. Um, so one study uh, showed, revealed that in some of these sequencing studies that it had accumulated 17 lineage defining mutations prior to its detection in early September. So what does this mean? This virus has been evolving for probably a very long time, and maybe some of those concepts we just mentioned about chronically, chronically infected hosts or suboptimal hosts. All right, then the, the B1351 lineage, right? So this is the one that was first identified in South Africa in December. And this one's a little bit more concerning, right? Because there's already clinical trials of vaccines that are showing it offers less protection. We already talked about that a little bit. And not just that, but the people that have been infected with other with the wild type um, Wuhan or some of the others uh, earlier uh, variants, 
are not protected by this, right? So may not be able to sort of fend off um, if they get infected with this new variant. It's been detected in at least 15 states. Um, and you can see that distribution here. So Florida, we have all of them in Florida. All right, so a little bit more about this B1351 variant. Um, we already have studies, like I mentioned, it's found to be partially resistant to neutralizing antibodies induced by two doses of both Pfizer and Moderna and Novavax vaccine. So there's already studies here. Uh, two reports have shown, at least two reports have shown that a single dose Pfizer vaccine could not neutralize B1351 at all. Studies with AstraZeneca, the adenovirus vaccine, already showed to be ineffective at protecting against the strain. It even showed an infection in the vaccine and the placebo group was essentially the same. Um, and in neutralizing antibody studies uh, showed that it had a very low activity. Same thing with the J&J. So also lack of efficacy in South Africa due to this variant strains. These are some of the studies if you wanna look at them later. All right, and then finally, the P1 strain, P1 lineage, um, uh, first identified in Brazil, right? So it was first reported in Japan, but it was somebody from Brazil. Um, emerged in late 2020 in Manaus um, and became the predominant variant in that area and uh, other South American cities. So this is uh, looks more like the B1351, some of the same mutations in the spike protein. And again, same concepts about it being able to potentially overcome immunity developed um, after other wild type variants. And again, as you see here, um, at least uh, detected in at least seven states, Florida also being one of them. Um, I'll skip through that. Okay, so now towards sort of the, some of the final concepts here, uh, just wanted to talk about this, the WHO just released recently published this article, March 15th, um, pointing to these wildlife farms as um, wildlife farms in southern China as a likely source of where this all started, right? So this is talking about um, a, a practice in China, in southern China that has been known to exist, at least dating back to 2016 from some of the uh, reports, where the concept of farming wildlife in, an, in order to alleviate rural populations and poverty in, in, more, in some of these more rural areas, right? So as of 2016, it had employed 14 million people, so 14 million jobs, and it was a $70 billion industry, right? So. This is a this is a bamboo rat, live bamboo rat that was for sale at a market, for example, in Myanmar. So this report basically revealed that it was with these from these wildlife farms that sell to the markets all throughout, including the market in Hunan market in Wuhan, which is where it all started. And that this could have been uh, sort of the beginning, right? These farms were supplying vendors at the Hunan Seafood Market in Wuhan, where this early outbreak of COVID-19 occurred, right? That's where we started seeing. Uh, there was definitely evidence of massive transmission going on at the, at the markets 
And uh, now we have evidence of, of where this came from. There was also um, a lot of documentation that was released later on about how quickly China closed down on all of these markets, right? All these wildlife farms were completely shut down. They were, uh, they had explained to people exactly how to get rid of the animals, how to bury them, burn them, whatever they needed to do. So they already knew that there was multiple, a lot of these farms that carried the disease, right? Um, virologists had already identified a bat virus that was genetically 96% similar to SARS-CoV-2 uh, at that time in these uh, southern provinces of Yunnan where many of these wildlife farms were. Um, furthermore, they knew that farms breed, these farms breed animals that were known to carry coronaviruses. All right, so more specifically, there's plenty of evidence of established animal reservoirs um, for SARS-CoV-2. So, there was outbreaks of SARS-CoV-2 that began to emerge on mink farms in the Netherlands and Denmark in late spring and early summer of 2020. Genomic and epidemiologic investigation of one of these earlier outbreaks in the Netherlands demonstrated that there was evidence of human to mink, mink to mink, and mink to human transmission. In November of 2020, Danish authorities reported 214 cases of human coronavirus disease associated with these mink farms. Many of these SARS-CoV-2 sequences from the Netherlands and Danish outbreaks had this Y453F mutation in the receptor binding domain of the spike protein, which might mediate increased binding affinity for mink ACE2, right? So they use the same receptor time for the cell. And then this apparent adaptation of SARS-CoV-2 to the minks is obviously concerning, right? Because if the virus continues to evolve and we have an animal reservoir, this could lead to potential recurrent spillover events, right? So it's one thing if we try to control disease in humans and we reduce the number of human cases, it's another if we continuously have these animal reservoirs and that risk for spillover events. All right, so what are some of the vaccine strategies to kind of account for all of this, trying to do um, battle some of these new variants? Um, so there's already, there's already, there are already ongoing trials and ongoing um, uh, companies are, are redesigning vaccines to deal with some of these new variants, right? So, so what do you do? What are some of those strategies? So for mRNA vaccines, seems fairly straightforward, right? You just change the code for, uh, for you change the code, right, for the mRNA to address the new changes in the spike protein. Of course, then we get into an issue of mass production again and distribution, but they're certainly on their way where you can envision Pfizer and Moderna giving a third dose of a vaccine to all of us, addressing some of these newer strains. Um, some other vaccine strategies being studied are, for example, a second dose of a J&J &J vaccine that could overcome any of the limitations of the one dose, right? This has already been proven on, shown on animal studies. So there's randomized control trials tra testing this two-dose J&J uh, option. They're in progress, but obviously uh, months away from completion. Uh, I already talked about a third dose of the mRNA vaccines. There's also discussion about combining different vaccines, right? So if the 
two-dose adenovirus vaccines are not getting to where exactly where we want them to be, maybe combining a protein vaccine as a booster for an adenovirus vaccine or something along those lines, maybe in an attempt to overcome any potential problems with anti-vector immunity, right? Um, and some of these are already ongoing, like I said. Um, for persons who have recovered from COVID, there are also small-scale studies that have already shown that a single mRNA vaccine can rapidly boost neutralizing antibody titers to very high levels. So this is more talking about um, trying to get to the most people without without being wasteful, especially trying to address uh, that huge inequality that we're seeing where some countries aren't even starting to vaccinate. So maybe in persons that have already had COVID, maybe all you need is a single dose of a vaccine that could really save a lot of doses, right? So as an example, taking the U.S., 30 million people in the U.S. who have had COVID, this could potentially save tens of millions of vaccine doses, right? And this is something that the French government has already started doing. It. Um, uh, from some of the, uh, what I was reading, it looks more like it's going to be more of a logistic challenge to try to track all these people and see who's had disease, et cetera, but uh, certainly uh, something to consider. Um, and then this is just kind of mentioning some of the studies that I already alluded to that are already going on. Um, studies from Pfizer and BioNTech in South Africa have already shown that vaccine efficacy is significantly decreased with these new variants, especially the B1351. Uh, Moderna is already starting to test a new vaccine again, changing the code to this specific to this 351. Um, and because uh, studies have shown already anywhere from sixfold to tenfold decrease in um, titers when seeing these new variant strains, especially the 351. Um, 